And we start the show where we often do tight ends. Tight end talk. Late round tight ends at that. Late round everything. That's my hashtag. We need to get that hashtag going again. It's about time. Hashtag late round everything on Twitter. Talking about players you can get in rounds 10 and beyond in redraft leagues. In rounds 20 and beyond in dynasty leagues. Late round everything. And here's an excerpt about tight ends and my tight end strategy specifically in dynasty leagues from my book, The Dynasty Dominator, which you can download at playerprofiler.com forward slash guides. An extended development cycle combined with the fragile nature of the tight end position and most importantly, the fact that you can stream tight ends even in deeper dynasty leagues incentivizes dynasty leaguers to wait out the competition and employ a late round tight end tactic in dynasty startup drafts and as you manage the roster throughout the life cycle of your dynasty league team. When you find yourself owning an elite tight end, you're obligated to try to monetize that windfall. Take advantage. I love cycling through tight ends because we know there will always be productive tight ends available on the waiver wire. Late round tight end has been the en vogue tactic in redraft leagues for a long time. But not a lot of people talk about emphasizing late round tight end in dynasty leagues. I think you absolutely should be emphasizing late round tight end in dynasty leagues even more than any other position, even more than late round quarterback. In redraft leagues, late round quarterback is as important of a tactic to implement as late round tight end, probably more so. It's not the case in Dynasty Leagues. In Dynasty Leagues, you want to build around an anchor quarterback that's going to be productive for 10 years for your team. But the tight end position isn't anything like the quarterback position. It is fragile. It is volatile. The quarterback position isn't fragile. And the production is steady year to year, unlike tight ends. Even in deeper Dynasty Leagues, tight end is really the only position that you can stream because in deeper Dynasty Leagues, All starting quarterbacks are rostered. All starting running backs and their backups are rostered. All starting receivers are rostered in most cases. But it seems you can always find a productive tight end at any point during the season in any format. Last year, we had a number of great streaming options as examples. Remember Gary Barnage? Remember Zach Miller? Tight end streaming is becoming more and more important as the college game de-emphasizes inline tight ends. That means that the development curve at the NFL level for tight ends to become every down players is even longer. So this idea that you should be drafting rookie tight ends like Max Williams is flawed. I would never draft a tight end like Max Williams in a dynasty league. To me, you might as well burn that draft pick. Because it's almost assured that he's going to take multiple years to develop. Multiple years parked on your taxi squad. Multiple years taking up a roster spot that prevents you from picking up someone else. So the opportunity cost of rostering Max Williams makes him not worth acquiring. You could probably argue that Max Williams has a negative value proposition in Dynasty rookie drafts because of the elongated development cycle that we're now seeing at the tight end position. You're much better off using that taxi squad roster spot for a quarterback, running back, or wide receiver and streaming tight ends as they come around. These late breakout tight ends are surfacing more and more every year, like Gary Barnage and like Zach Miller. So I'm going to give you a handful of tight ends that I'm targeting in both redraft and dynasty leagues in the later rounds this season. The number one 
tight end on my list of late round tight ends to target is Vance McDonald. Vance McDonald has nice metrics across the board. First and foremost, 26.6% college dominator rating at Rice was above the 80th percentile. Now, did he do it as one of these move tight ends that weighs 235 pounds and his game doesn't translate to the NFL level? No. Vance McDonald is 6'4", 265, and he runs a 4'6", 9, which means his height-adjusted speed score is 109.8. I had Rich Rebar on the Football Diehards program, and on that program, Rich Rebar talked about the massive target void that we're now seeing in San Francisco. Anquan Bolden is gone, and Anquan Bolden accounted for 111 targets last year. Not only is Anquan Bolden gone, though, Chip Kelly is the new coach. Chip Kelly's Eagles teams led the league in number of plays run in his first two seasons in Philadelphia. Put everything about Vance McDonald that we know aside. Let's not look at Vance McDonald, the player. Let's just focus on the external factors surrounding Vance McDonald. Forget the fact that he's an above-average athlete, and he was a great college producer. Forget that for a moment. Vance McDonald's fantasy production will be propelled by two positive external factors, primarily pass volume increase and a lingering target void. Not to mention the fact that he was good last year when given an opportunity. He had three games of over 15 fantasy points, essentially in spot duty. His targets per game were almost on par with Torrey Smith. He is the de facto number two target in the passing game. That's where Vance McDonald sits right now. Almost no player in the NFL had his situation improved during the offseason more than Vance McDonald. What a boon for his opportunity heading into 2016. If Vance McDonald were a farmer, everything would be breaking right for his crops. Just enough rain. Just enough sunshine. He's like a target farmer headed for a total windfall season. Vance McDonald had a target farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on his farm he caught some passes, E-I-E-I-O, and it doesn't matter who the quarterback is, all that matters is that volume, E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> Love Vance McDonald. Number one late round tight end on my board, on my late round tight end big board that I've created metaphorical big board. Number two on that big board, very close to Vance McDonald. It's very close. Which one I like better? But the opportunity puts Vance McDonald over the top. The guy in the number two position is Will Ty. You may forget how productive Will Ty was last year. In six of his nine games as the starter, once Larry Donnell was put on IR with what was reported to be a strained neck, but he's yet to be cleared for contact. So Larry Donnell's career is now in jeopardy. Once Will Ty took over for Larry Donnell, he scored more than 10 fantasy points in six of his nine games as a starter, receiving 50% or more snap share. He was more efficient and productive than Reuben Randall, the number two wide receiver on the team during that time. That makes Will Ty the Giants' de facto number two receiver until Victor Cruz proves he's healthy enough to contribute. Now, why was Will Ty so successful? Well, we saw that Will Ty has the elements to be a successful NFL player on his profile when we were breaking down rookie prospects because Will Ty is 6'2", 265. So he has the highest BMI of any tight end we've ever seen. And though he weighs 262 pounds, he still ran a 4'6'2". That's a 111.4, 87th percentile height-adjusted speed score. So he's big and fast. We like that. And then, of course, what else does he have? 
Upper percentile college dominator, 36.1%. Ooh, yeah. 14.6 yards per reception at Stony Brook, 72nd percentile. Big, explosive, productive. Now sitting in a position in the Giants passing game where he's scheduled to get tremendous opportunities. So Will Ty and Vance McDonald are locked in as my two favorite late round tight ends. The next guy is Lance Kendricks, because why not? He's also locked in as a starter on an NFL franchise. That's where this all starts. It's important that you're locked in as the starter on an NFL franchise. That's the starting point. Vance McDonald, check. Will Ty, check. Lance Kendricks, check. Now, like Will Ty and like Vance McDonald, Lance Kendricks was also an exceptional tight end prospect. 27.5% college dominator rating at Wisconsin. That was 85th percentile. So all the guys we've talked about have 80th percentile or above dominator ratings at the college level. Wow, that was at Wisconsin, a major conference. Lance Kendricks also has a 124.1 spark score, 87th percentile. So above the 80th percentile athleticism and above the 80th percentile college production. Yes, please. Um, Excuse me. Excuse me, sir. Yes. Can I have a Lance Kendricks, please? Thank you. Thank you. Just when you come around, when you come back around, this would appreciate a refill on my Lance Kendricks. Appreciate that. And like with Vance McDonald, and like with Will Ty, the target distribution hierarchy on the LA Rams is wide open. Tavon Austin, <sighs> Kenny Britt, <sighs> Lance Kendricks, yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. Now the next guy on the list is Virgil Green, similar athletically to Lance Kendricks, Will Ty, and Vance McDonald, only Virgil Green is more athletic. A 90th percentile SparkX score on playerprofiler.com. 75th percentile or above across the board in all workout metrics from height adjusted speed score to catch radius. An above average college dominator. An above average college yards per reception. Another athletic producer. That's what we like. And I believe he is locked into a starting job now that Owen Daniels is gone and Vernon Davis is gone. But <laughs> record scratch. Roto World disagrees. Roto World thinks the job will go to Jeff Hewerman from Ohio State. Yes, Jeff Hewerman. Jeff Hewerman of the 9.3% 16th percentile college dominator rating. Jeff Hewerman, who doesn't have a Spark X score. Jeff Hewerman of the 4.86 40 time. The 32nd percentile height adjusted speed score. That Jeff Hewerman. That guy is going to win the starting tight end job for the Denver Broncos over Virgil Green. Get out of here. But so many analysts continue to call Virgil Green a one-dimensional blocking tight end. In what world? I don't know how these narratives get started. Someone said that he's a phenomenal blocker, and that for some reason nullifies the fact that he's also a terrific receiver. When Virgil Green catches passes over the middle, oftentimes I have to squint to see the number because I can't tell if it's Demarius Thomas converting the reception or Virgil Green because they look so similar. But I'm hearing Jeff Hewerman is similar to Heath Miller. Right, 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 right. Heath Miller with the upper percentile of college dominator rating. Every time you have a big, slow tight end that you're enthusiastic about, you comp him to Heath Miller. That's the rule. Because Heath Miller is the one guy that fits that archetype. That's it. The slow, plodding tight end that was actually productive. Heath Miller pulled that off. It's not easy to do. There's a very low probability that you ever become an NFL producer if you have Jeff Hewerman's profile. 
So that's why we always have to default to Heath Miller to find a comp for a guy like that if we want to comp him to anyone that happened to be productive. If there is one guy that looks like Heath Miller, it's Ryan Griffin. Ryan Griffin has something that we talk about often on this show. Size-adjusted agility. 1144 agility score for Ryan Griffin was 67th percentile. And he was more productive than any of the tight ends we've talked about so far at the college level. At Connecticut, 38.8% college dominator rating. Whoa! That's Heath Millerian. 16.7 college yards per reception, 90th percentile. Ryan Grig... Did I almost said Ryan Grigson? Oh my god. I can't believe it. Ryan Grigson. Oh my god. <sighs> Ryan Grigson at tight end. I can't even imagine the missed opportunities that, that Ryan Grigson would experience playing the tight end position. Woo! Ryan Grigson. I said it again. I did it again. Oh my god. I did it again. Ryan Griffin. Ryan Griffin is actually most similar to Heath Miller of all the tight ends we've talked about because on the football field, in addition to the workout metrics and the college production, he's efficient. Plus 2.9 production premium and plus 9.8 target premium for Ryan Griffin. We're both top 25 efficiency metrics for tight ends last season. 6.3 fantasy points per game. Not impressive. Still top 30 though. More than CJ Fedorowicz. And CJ Fedorowicz is his competition for targets on the Houston Texans. So that's why I like Ryan Griffin. I like him to win that job because when he's on a football field, he produces checks a lot of boxes that we like and I believe he will win that job and he's the deepest sleeperiest of these tight end options that's my top five now I also like Niles Paul and I also like Deion Sims but they're not starters and they don't project to be starters in week one so I can't put them in the top five with those other guys but I still love Niles Paul he beat out Jordan Reed for the starting role last preseason let me repeat that Niles Paul beat out Jordan Reed in a fair fight, apples for apples comparison. The coaching staff chose Niles Paul as its starter over Jordan Reed. Jordan Reed, fantasy football's number one tight end on a fantasy points per game basis last season. Niles Paul, upper 90th percentile Spark X score makes him comparable to Dustin Keller in the playerprofiler.com database. Niles Paul looks like one of the best move tight ends we've ever seen. And if you had to pick a backup tight end to roster, it would be Niles Paul because look at Jordan Reed's injury history. Concussion, quadricep strain, shoulder contusion, strained hamstring, strained hamstring again, sprained thumb, concussion again, bruised hip, strained quadriceps again. That's just in the last three seasons. The same corollary applies to Deion Sims. He's the backup tight end behind Jordan Cameron. Jordan Cameron, who has a similar injury history to Jordan Reed. Deion Sims also, average to above average workout metrics across the board, above average college production. But the thing I like about Deion Sims, the size. He looks like a two-way tight end, an every down producer, 6'5", 262. Fourth round pick from Michigan State. If something happens to Jordan Cameron, I am scrambling to get Deion Sims across all formats. Now, I had Matthew Friedman, Matthew Friedman from Rotoviz Radio, Matthew Friedman from Fantasy Labs on the Football Diehards podcast, and we were lamenting on that show how Kenneth Dixon is usurping Derrick Henry on various rookie rankings lists. It's just unbelievable. Makes my blood pressure rise to a place where my hat may fly off my head. This idea that Kenneth Dixon could rise ahead of Derrick Henry on people's boards. I'm like, what? What are you doing? So Matthew Friedman and I were trying to understand the mechanics behind that process. 
How the hell could anyone rank Louisiana Tech's Kenneth Dixon, who averaged 5.4 yards per carry against Rice, North Texas, UTEP, Southern Miss, Arkansas State, Tennessee State. No, check that. Middle Tennessee State, Louisiana Lafayette, FIU, Southern, Western Kentucky, and Kansas State. Kenneth Dixon averaged 5.4 yards per carry against that competition. And when he did face Kansas State, a member of a major conference, he wasn't impressive. While talking about Dixon on that show, the following running backs were mentioned for comparison purposes. Jay Ajayi, Andre Williams, Bryce Brown. Those were the stylistic and analytic matches that I provided. Matthew Friedman comped him to Monte Ball. That's right. Using data, he was compared to Jay Ajayi, Andre Williams, and Monte Ball. Using tangible evidence, real falsifiable analysis, numbers, metrics, analytics. Using that process, we compared him to Jay Ajayi, Andre Williams, and I'm not being contrarian on purpose. I just don't understand why when Matthew Friedman and I look at Kenneth Dixon, we see one player. And when film grinders look at Kenneth Dixon, they see another player. When metrics people look at Derrick Henry, they see a generational talent. When film grinders look at Derrick Henry, all they want to do is criticize him. And I don't understand. Derrick Henry doesn't run behind his pads. (laughs) What does that even mean? It's just gibberish. Nonsensical analysis. But that's the analysis driving Derrick Henry outside many fantasy analysts' top three running backs. Replaced by running backs from Jordan Howard to Kenneth Dixon. Just depends on what traits the couch scout arbitrarily thinks is important. Meanwhile, that 5.4 yards per carry that I mentioned, that metric is so powerful. Because the outcome of every run posted on Kenneth Dixon's profile is embedded in that 5.4 yards per carry. That is an aggregate statistic measuring the efficiency of every rushing attempt by Kenneth Dixon last season. Such a powerful number. And the percentile is also important. 44th percentile. That's why we have it on playerprofiler.com because it provides context. It shows you that while 5.4 yards per carry might sound good to someone familiar with NFL efficiency, that's above average for an NFL running back, but not for a college running back, and certainly not from a college running back playing at Louisiana Tech. Now, we laid the same criticism at Jay Ajayi's feet last year playing in the Mountain Whack. Why weren't you more efficient? That 5.4 yards per carry tells you more than a 70-page profile from some film room guide that you buy for $29.99. Kenneth Dixon is a conundrum. Matthew Friedman and I were talking it through together on air on the Football Diehards podcast with Matt Kelly. Subscribe to it on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. But then later, my Kenneth Dixon aha moment occurred. It came as I listened to the Dynasty One podcast, and Matt Waldman was explaining how Kenneth Dixon was wired to be a winner. Yes, Kenneth Dixon is wired to be a winner at the next level because on film, Waldman saw Dixon tell something to his coach on the sideline and then the coach smiled. And that for Waldman was a window into Kenneth Dixon's professional potential. Are you fucking kidding me? That's the analysis? That's what we're going on? That's why we're ranking Kenneth Dixon ahead of Derrick Henry? What? Things running backs say to coaches have become a distinguishing factor when grading them? 
when trying to measure and project their potential at the next level, the things they say to coaches on the sideline are what matter? Whether these on-field conversations happen or not, just put that off to the side for a second. Of course it's irrelevant what Kenneth Dixon says to his coaching staff on the sideline. Of course that's irrelevant. But never mind that. Just pretend it does matter, right? Even if it did matter, that can't be tracked and scored across all prospects in an apples-to-apples comparison. We don't have a way to measure the impact of the words that you spoke to a coach on the sidelines. We don't have the transcripts, nor a way to measure their impact or their quality. So why are we talking about it? I don't know. How can that be part of analysis? I don't know. I don't know. You're just reading lips and body language. We don't even know what he said for Christ's sake. We don't even know the words he spoke. Think about it. Maybe he didn't say anything. Maybe Kenneth Dixon farted. And that's why the coach smiled. You don't know because you weren't there. You're just watching the tape. And of all the things to notate while you're watching the tape, you're observing conversations on the sidelines and applying meaning to those events. Yes, okay. That would be poetic, though. That would be so poetic if the thing that allowed Kenneth Dixon to usurp Derrick Henry was a fart noise. Someone drafted Kenneth Dixon ahead of Derrick Henry in a dynasty rookie draft because of a fart noise. Imagine, that's where we are now with football analysis. This is, this is where we are. And this is what I object to all the time on the show. These amateur couch scouts come home from work, put the kids to bed, open a bag of Doritos, and then fire up the laptop to watch some draft breakdown in what they pretentiously call a film room. Right, it's not a film room. It's just a room. Just a room in your house. And then they have the hubris to criticize a professional or soon-to-be professional athlete's craft. Criticize his instincts, criticize his vision, criticize his technique, his mental processing, quote unquote. Who does anyone think they are to criticize those elements of an athlete? Jumping into the person's mind, jumping behind their eyes, jumping into their muscle fibers. That's what we're doing in order to find ways to criticize these athletes that are at the peak of their profession. They are capable of feats of athletic brilliance that the wannabe film guru can't possibly comprehend. There's no way, if you haven't played the game at the highest level, that you can relate to what's happening on the field. You just can't. You think you can. Clearly, these amateur couch scouts think they can, but I don't think they can. I can't. I cannot put myself in the shoes of an athlete and understand what's going on especially on an NFL football field where 11 players are colliding randomly and no play looks the same as the next. Yet film gurus, they feel empowered and entitled to sit back and second guess a running back's decision to hit a hole. Oh, he hit hole A instead of hole B. He should have hit hole B. How do I know that? Well, because I write for a fantasy football magazine, because I've watched thousands of hours of film. Yes, you've watched thousands of hours of film from a perch of pure ignorance. Critiquing an elite performer who has overcome a thousand to one odds to reach the top of their profession, obsessively sculpting a singular skill. These athletes are so specialized in what they do. They only do this one thing. The running back only does this one thing. Take the football and matriculate it down the field and try to score a touchdown. That's it. There are very few professions in this culture that are so specialized. And in your free time, you think you can 
watch a play unfold and critique the player's mental processing and technique? How does one get to a place that they feel capable of doing that? I just don't understand how these wannabe experts have the audacity to critique the players at the peak of the profession and then share it with the world with definitive certainty. I don't understand where this analysis comes from. I don't understand how these 100-page draft guides and scouting reports get written. I just don't understand. I try to put myself in the shoes of these individuals critiquing these athletes in a way that I don't feel qualified to critique them and I don't think I ever could. So I have a very difficult time empathizing with the amateur couch scout because the bottom line is it is impossible for Joe Couch Scout in his metaphorical film room and with his biblical draft guide to decipher the underlying mechanics of any given play he's watching and critiquing. And because of that, because I don't believe they understand the underlying mechanics of what they're watching, it essentially nullifies most film-based observations. That's why making a decision in a rookie draft to draft Kenneth Dixon over Derrick Henry because of a film-based observation is a wrong-headed approach to making a fantasy football decision. Think about it. You see this all the time. Film grinders criticizing a wide receiver for running a lazy route. Are you sure it was a lazy route? What if the play that was called was designed in a way that that receiver was supposed to round off that route. You don't have access to the play that was called. So how do you know what he was supposed to do? You don't. What if wide receiver X's job on a particular play was to be a decoy on a particular play and look disinterested? Maybe those were his instructions. Maybe he was doing his job correctly, but you didn't know what his job was. You don't have access to the playbook. You're not in the meeting rooms before the game, so you don't know. You're assuming. So the film-based analysis is built on a platform of assumptions. And then on top of this assumption platform, you layer subjective analysis on a foundation of oftentimes flawed assumptions. That's what we keep seeing. That's how Kenneth Dixon can rise above Derrick Henry on Dynasty League football rankings. If you don't know the play that was called, then you don't actually know if the running back hit the right hole or not, or if the wide receiver ran a great route or not. But even if analysts who did play in the NFL and can make educated guesses at the play that was called, even analysts like Merrill Hodge, who know infinitely more about what they're watching than Matt Waldman, even analysts like Merrill Hodge get things wrong, offer analysis that is absurd. Merrill Hodge ranked Jarvis Landry his number three young wide receiver and kept Allen Robinson off this list. Why? Because Merrill Hodge does not use an evidence-based process to generate these rankings. He's using his eye test, which is a flawed approach. That's why these scouting reports are often filled with contradictions. Read the Martavis Bryant scouting report from Nolan Naraki. It doesn't feel like a scouting report. It feels like you're reading Mad Libs. It reads as follows. Martavis Bryant can drop his hips very well going into his routes. But then in the weaknesses, it reads, stiff in and out of his breaks. What? How? You see this over and over and over again. The next wide receiver you pull up, he's stiff at the stem, lacking the ability to drop his hips. And then the very next paragraph, he has excellent fluidity in and out of his breaks. And Nolan Naraki played college football. So he at least has some modicum of understanding about what he's watching. But even someone with college football experience, even Merrill Hodge, professional experience, these guys are clearly making it up as they go along most of the time. And with these scouting reports, they talk in circles so you can't pin down these scouting reports to a definitive view. 
Some of them are just gibberish buzzwords that mean nothing. Useless. And when you read the contradictory details or views that don't make logical sense in scouting reports, it reveals that a lot of these analysts who are breaking down film and letting you know what's going on actually are just faking it because they don't really know what's going on. That's what's so maddening to me. These wannabe film grooves are not qualified to say which scheme Derrick Henry fits best in or criticize his hip fluidity. They're just not. These hacks may as well be analyzing brain surgery or a physics experiment in the Halcyon Collider. They would be just as qualified to make relevant observations in those fields, surgery, physics, and explain what's happening in those fields as they would be qualified to explain what's happening on an NFL football field. 